we should get started because we've got quite a lot of things to do this evening. Uh, my name is John Worrell. I'm the uh, chair of the uh, International Management Committee of the Lakatosh Award, and uh, as such, it's my pleasure to be chairing this event. Uh, I'm not going to say anything now about the Lakatosh Award and, and about the wonderful books by our two speakers tonight that won it. Uh, that will happen at the reception afterwards uh, when. Uh, the award will also be made, and you're all invited to that reception if you'd like to come. That will be in the old building on Houghton Street, 6th floor in the uh, City of Common Room. Okay, so lots about Lakatosh and Lakatosh Award and uh, the two winning books then, but for now we're, we're going to have the treat of hearing the two uh, co-winners of the 2013 Lakatosh Award uh, talk about their work, and uh, first of all it's going to be Ulla Ritchie of the University of Michigan. The idea is that they will each speak for half an hour, then there'll be 15 minutes or so discussion, a little bit less to allow for turnover, uh, uh, and so the whole thing will last uh, an hour and a half. And then we'll go off to the reception starting at eight. Okay, so Laura, please. Oh, sorry. I'm supposed to t remind you uh, of the hashtag for this, whatever the hell that is. Uh, <laughs> And uh, that you're, please turn off your mobile phones because apparently not only that might they disturb the speaker, it also affects the, the sound system apparently and the recording. So if you wouldn't mind doing that, thank you very much. Sorry, Laura. Okay. Thanks, John. Uh, so suppose you asked me what the world is like, and I replied with an expansive gesture, and I said, like that. Uh, my answer would be unassailable, but it would also be pretty uninteresting. You'd have a right to feel sort of ripped off. Uh, so suppose you persisted. Uh, you asked, what is like that like? Or trying to trick me into saying something informative. What's the world like according to physics? Or what physical theory is true in the world? If I were cooperative, I might respond by telling you things about what sort of properties physics takes to be interesting, what sort of properties the world instantiates according to physics, how uh, those properties are arranged. Uh, and the first thing I want to try to claim is that to tell you anything significant about how the world is according to physics, I have to start telling you quite a bit about how the world might be according to physics. Uh, so suppose I thought position was an important physical notion to get across to you. I might start by saying something about how position is measured, but different and rival physical theories agree about how position is measured. I wouldn't, by telling you how position is measured, be telling you much significant and specific to the theory true of the world, the physical theory true of the world about physics. Uh, it's not going to take you very far into physics to find out what we do to measure positions. Suppose the physics is Newtonian. I might try to give you more of a grip on what position was by telling you how position figures into the realm of physical quantities according to Newtonian theory. I might tell you, for instance, position, it can vary with time, its rate of change with time, its velocity, and velocity's rate of change with time is acceleration, and uh, how a position's system's position changes over time is governed by Newton's laws, which relate acceleration to forces, uh, and, uh, and so on and so on. And the more I tell you about what position is, the further I get into telling you how Newtonian theory relates position to other quantities. Uh, an account of... Uh, uh, by telling you what position is, I'm going to start to give you an account of the role position plays for Newtonian theory, characterizing what's possible according to Newtonian theory, uh, a.k.a. Newtonian possibilities. Um, so the claim is to fully eliminate, illuminate what Newtonian position is, I need to tell you what worlds are possible according to Newton's theory and what role position plays in circumcising that collection of possible worlds. Uh, 
Uh, if rather than Newtonian, the world were Aristotelian or Galilean or relativistic or quantum mechanical, my account of what the world is like according to the theory of physics true of it uh, would have a different list of properties or the same list of properties differently arranged. But that's as it should be. Uh, uh, my account of what the world is like should vary with the theory of physics true of the world. Uh, and the other thing to keep in mind is in telling me what the world is like according to physics, uh, uh, there's various levels of detail I can go into. And I think it just might be a matter of taste at what point the detail ceases to be rewarding. Okay. So what I'm trying to suggest is an illuminating account of what the world is like according to a theory of physics, call it T, is also an account of the ways the world might be according to T. So here's a picture. Uh, highly fancy picture. There's a picture of logical space, artist conception, logical space. The, yellow, the blue bob is logical space. It's just logical space. Any logical possibility appears in it. So that star there is a world where uh, there are solar systems and the planetary orbits are rectangular. It's logically possible. Uh, in order to say what the world is like according to a theory of physics, uh, uh, one way of going about that is to uh, su subdivide logical space, put zones in logical space. Uh, so that pink blob is if I'm trying to explicate Newtonian theory, an account of what worlds are possible according to Newtonian theory. They're going to include worlds where there are solar systems where orbits are elliptical. Uh, call such an account an account of what worlds are possible according to a physical theory, an interpretation of the theory. This is following Van Frossen. Um, and uh, uh, a realist is going to want to claim of her theory that among the worlds possible according to it is the actual world. So we know the actual world's not Newtonian. It doesn't have rectangular orbits. It might be someplace like that. So with that prolegomenon, what I'm hoping to do today is talk about some things, theories of what I call QM infinity might teach us about interpretation, physical possibility, and scientific realism. So QM infinity denotes quantum field theories and other quantum theories where infinitely many degrees of freedom are involved. I'm going to skip the autobiographical interlude for the sake of time. Uh, um, but the, <laughs> the, the reason I wrote this book um, is I hope there might be something sui generis, interesting, compelling, foundationally for philosophers uh, and quantum field theory uh, as distinct, sui generis as distinct from the very compelling problems of interpretation that arise in connection with ordinary quantum mechanics. Uh, and I think there is something sui generis, compelling, foundationally interesting about theories of Q-infinity. Um, in the case of Q-infinity, there's a sense in which we don't even know what the theories we're trying to interpret are. Uh, this is distinct from uh, ordinary quantum mechanics, where we usually know what the theory is. We just have no idea how to make sense of it. Um, so in order to explain why uh, it is, I think, uh, it's true to say of Q-infinity, we don't even know what the theory is, I'm going to tell you a little bit about where quantum theories come from. I'm going to tell you about a recipe called the Hamiltonian quantization recipe. Uh, explain why, for ordinary quantum mechanics, as long as you're dealing with systems of finitely many degrees of freedom, the results of this recipe are perfectly consistent and tractable, whereas for theories of QM infinity, they aren't. And I'm going to signal or point out some questions that circumstance might prompt. Okay, so I'm going to start by giving you a snapshot of what classical theories are like, a snapshot of what quantum theories are like, and a story about how to get a quantum theory from a classical theory. Here's a brutally simple classical theory. It's classical mechanics for a particle moving in one dimension. Um, Classical mechanics attributes this particle a state in a two-dimensional phase space. You give it a state by assigning it a value for its position, a value for its momentum. I'm sorry. Position and momentum, observable values, coordinate a phase space of possible states. Uh, other physics of position and momentum are canonical, basic, fundamental physical magnitudes. There's lots of other physical magnitudes, important ones, energy, so on. Um, other physical magnitudes are functions of position and momentum. 
Uh, and what this means is once you specify a classical state for a system, it's just a matter of calculation what values of other physical magnitudes pertain to it, because they're just functions of its, uh, of its state. Um, something I think that's important about physical theories is uh, they don't supply their physical magnitudes in an undifferentiated heap. They equip their set of physical magnitudes with interesting structures that tell you about the symmetries and the laws of the theory. And one way to limb the interesting structure of classical magnitudes uh, is to uh, uh, define a kind of product on the physic mag physical magnitudes called the Poisson bracket. The important thing about it is it gives interesting structure to the set of physical magnitudes, tells us about its laws, tells us about its symmetries. Uh, and that's as Plato would like it to be. He thought all discourse over this existence of the interweaving of forms, the Poisson bracket interweaves the forms that are the physical magnitudes constituting classical mechanics. So that's a snapshot of what a classical theory is organized like. Generically, a quantum theory is organized in ways that are both similar and different. Uh, like a classical theory, it attributes system states, and defines a set of physical magnitudes pertaining to them, but the definitions are different than the classical definitions. Uh, for a quantum theory, a classical, for, for a quantum theory, the state of a system is a vector in a kind of vector space called a Hilbert space. There's a picture, state vector phi. Um, physical magnitudes are these gadgets defined on the Hilbert space called self-adjoint operators. Why that matters is the possible values of physical magnitudes are quantized, and for each physical magnitude A with a hat on it, the quantum state phi, rather than saying with certainty what the value of that magnitude is, typically defines a probability distribution over possible values of that magnitude. And moreover, uh, yeah, usually the probabilities are different from zero and one. And moreover, uh, there's usually a trade-off between a quantum state phi's capacity to pr predict the value of one magnitude with certainty sharply, and its capacity to predict the value of another magnitude with certainty. And this thing that I've written down there, the commutator bracket, uh, that's the terms of this trade-off. And it also endows the collection of quantum magnitudes with an algebraic structure, sort of interesting structure that tells us about the laws and symmetries of the theory. Classical theory, generically. Quantum theory, generically. And here's the story, the Hamiltonian quantization recipe, the story about where some quantum theories come from. You start with the classical theory. It's got a pile of magnitudes, but they're not just a pile. They're organized. They're organized by the Poisson bracket. The idea is to quantize this classical theory. It's a recipe for given a classical theory, creating a quantum theory. That's the quantization of it. You capture that classical observable structure in a quantum observable structure. So you'll find quantum mechanical counterparts to the classical observables and a quantum mechanical counterpart to the classical Poisson bracket algebraic structure. Uh, more specifically, you find Operators, these are quantum observables acting on a Hilbert space. Q and P, they're the quantum counterparts of the classical observables, position and momentum. And you demand that they satisfy the canonical commutation relations, which is just copying down in bracket form in the form of algebraic structures appropriate to quantum mechanics, the algebraic structure of the classical observables. And then you're off to the races. The recipe is uh, start with the Poisson bracket that defines these canonical commutation relations, the quantum bracket relations. You find operators satisfying them. That's called a Hilbert space representation of the canonical commutation relations. Uh, the guys participating it correspond to position and momentum. And then it's your job as a physicist to build interesting structure of your theory. So you start building more physical magnitudes out of P and Q. You take linear combinations and limits of sequences of linear combinations. Um, and at the end of the day, what you wind up with is this object, the observable algebra, uh, the collection of all quantum observables. Uh, BH is the set of bounded operators on a Hilbert space. But the important thing about it is it's the collection, interestingly structured, of physical magnitudes who can be defined by right sort of genealogical relationship to the physical magnitude supplying a representation of the canonical commutation relations. Uh, and then that's your, to finish your kinematics, you add quantum states, and then you supply a dynamics. 
Um, so far, classical theory gives you a Poisson bracket that supplies a target for quantization to canonical commutation relations. You find a representation of the canonical commutation relations, and you build from the elements of the representation observable algebra. And then given certain totally innocuous, uh, unassailable, natural assumptions about what a state is, uh, 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 an account of what states are uh, possible for the theory falls out of um, the observable algebra. And that's the account provided by uh, the density matrices on the Hilbert space. Um, so starting with the Poisson bracket, following Hamiltonian quantization, imposing sane expectations about what a state is, you wind up with an account of what observables matter, how they're organized, what states on those observables are possible. You wind up with a germ of an interpretation of the theory and a germ of an account of what worlds are possible according to the theory, the worlds corresponding to the way states distribute values over properly organized observables. All right, so that's how you get a quantum theory. Um, if you, like me, you're prone to anxiety, having heard the story, you might be seized by a uniqueness worry. Uh, the worry is as follows. It's that starting from the same classical theory, you might worry that you and I, competently following this Hamiltonian quantization recipes, might wind up with different, importantly different, distinct quantum theories. You might come back with a realization of the canonical commutation relations in terms of differential operators on a space of functionals. I might come back with a realization in terms of infinite square matrices. Wouldn't it be terrible if this recipe, recipes are only as good as their results are consistent. Wouldn't it be terrible if this recipe afforded distinct realizations? Wouldn't it be terrible if we all set out to quantize a quantum theory and all came back with rival, uh, we all set out to to quantize a classical theory and all came back with rival quantum theories? That's the uniqueness worry. Um, The standard answer to the uniqueness worry invokes a result called the Stone von Neumann answer um, theorem. The standard answer is no. There's no worries about uniqueness. There's only one way, essentially one way, to carry out the quantization recipe. Uh, So the Stone von Neumann theorem tells us uh, if the theory we're setting out to quantize is a theory of classical mechanics uh, concerning systems of finitely many degrees of freedom, there's only one way to quantize it all representations of the canonical commutation relations stand to one another in a relation called unitary equivalence. And there's pretty good reasons, which I'm going to admit, to think unitary equivalence is an adequate explication of physical equivalence. There's only one way to follow the Hamiltonian quantization recipe, supposing we start from a classical theory whose degrees of freedom are finite. Uh, That's the thing I'm omitting about why the Stone-Vanoyman theorem is reassuring. What I want to dwell on instead is why the Stone-Vanoyman theorem isn't reassuring. It's not reassuring because it has a presupposition that the theories we set out to quantize concern finitely many degrees of freedom. Sometimes the classical theories we set out to quantize involve infinitely many degrees of freedom. For instance, classical field theories. For such theories, we can still carry out the Hamiltonian quantization recipe to quantize those theories. But by presupposing you're dealing with classical theories that are suitably finite, the Stone von Neumann theorem ceases to apply. And when we apply the quantization recipe to a classical field theory, it turns out we can obtain unitarily inequivalent and thereby presentably physically inequivalent representations of the canonical commutation relations encapsulating the quantum field theory. Each representation reports to be the, or the the seat of the quantum field theory that quantizes the classical field theory. However, different quantizations, different representations can differ on such physically basic questions as whether there are particles at all, and if there are, whether it's possible to have only finitely many of them. And this non-uniqueness is the thing I think is striking and sui generis about quantum field theories, QM infinity. This non-uniqueness, it does arise, but it's hard to see in ordinary quantum mechanics. It's impossible to miss when you're talking about theories of QM infinity. 
I think the non-uniqueness is interesting because it prompts a host of questions that are recognizably interpretational, foundational. What is a quantum field? What is a quantum theory? What criteria of identity is it appropriate to apply to quantum theories? Uh, what does it really take to be a quantum state or a quantum property? And a sort of meta question, how do we frame and adjudicate answers to questions such as the foregoing? And that's sort of what the book's about. Uh, some strategies for answering these questions, there's worlds of them. There's two uh, sort of uh, extreme ones, two broad responses uh, to the non-uniqueness of representations of the canonical commutation relations for a quantum field theory. Uh, they'll probably have occurred to you. Um, one is in the face of the non-uniqueness, declare a bunch of the candidates imposter. So I call this the privileging strategy. It's to identify the quantum field theory with a unique physically significant representation and consign rival representations to the dustbin of mathematical artifacts. So cook up an account of physical significance that enables you to throw away all but one of the representations. The other broad response will have occurred to you is uh, presented with this host of representations, uh, make peace with the non-uniqueness by finding something that they all share. This is the response of abstraction. Ascend a level of abstraction from the concrete representations to identify the QFT with features all representations of the canonical commutation relations share. And consign features parochial to particular representations to the dustbin of physically superfluous structure. There's two broad, broad responses. Uh, philosophical question, which interpretive strategy should we adopt? Um, what I do in the book is I set out to examine uses to which theories of QM infinity are put in the hopes that a winning interpretive strategy, that is, a strategy that makes the most sense of the most uses, will emerge. Uh, and I try to argue in the book, it doesn't. No winning strategy emerges. Why? Well, theories of QM infinity are used in many contexts. Particle physics, cosmology, black hole thermodynamics, solid state physics, homely statistical physics. Uh, they're used in many contexts with many aims to model, explain, predict, service launching pads for the development of future physics. And a sort of logical possibility is that an interpretive strategy that supports, in one supports one aim in one context may frustrate another aim in another context, or another aim in the same context, or the same aim in another context, or even the same aim in the same context. Those are all logical possibilities. And I try to argue theories of QM infinity realize them. In the book, I try to argue this. I'm not going to review the argument in, in detail. Uh, but here's a flavor of it. Um, the privileging strategy, it's worked tremendously for standard particle physics, where a principle of privilege uh, comes from the symmetries of the space-time where the particle physics is set. Uh, you can privilege a representation by requiring obedience to the symmetries of that space-time. The representation you privilege makes available a very nice way of talking about particles. However, there's aspects of standard particle physics, for instance, the soft photons at play and certain sorts of scattering experiments that can't be modeled in terms of the privileged representation, but they can be modeled by the representation, the privileged, by representations the privileging strategy would discard. And there's some explanatory agendas involving particles that you can't carry out within the confines of the privileged representation, for instance, cosmological particle creation. Uh, you need different rivals putatively discarded by the privileging strategy representations to accommodate them. Um, and moreover, stepping back and uh, taking the scope of QM infinity to include things other than narrow particle physics, there's other explanatory agendas encountered, symmetry breaking, phase coexistence, superconductivity, the dynamics of ex the expanding universe that are hamstrung by the privileging strategy. The abstraction strategy works very well for some of these other uh, explanatory agendas. Um, but not all of them. The abstraction strategy uh, consigns surplus structure to the dustbin of uh, uh, 
uh, yeah, the, 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 abstract, the abstraction strategy uh, identifies, throws away what it takes to be surplus structure. And among the surplus structures it does away with are things like the order properties that distinguish between phases in a phase transition, things like the observables that need to be well-defined for certain sorts of dynamics and uh, solid-state physics to make sense. Uh, and so the claim I try to make in the book is that there's worthwhile physical projects promoted by each strategy, worthwhile projects frustrated by each strategy, worthwhile projects frustrated by both strategies. The claim I try to defend in the book is there is no winning strategy. And then the question is, well, where does that leave us? If a winning strategy for interpreting theories of QM infinity has failed to emerge, does it follow that we don't understand QM infinity? Well, I try to suggest, no, it doesn't. On the contrary, I think, noticing the failure Noticing that equipping a theory of QM infinity with constitutive canonical commutation relations leaves open a host of interpretive questions, questions which can be and in practice are answered in different ways in different contexts of aim and application. Noticing that, cataloging that, is understanding QM infinity. And I think, I'm going to close by trying to suggest this, it's also understanding something about science, something that might change the terms of the scientific realism debate. So here's this picture again. Um, space of logically possible worlds, what you're doing when you're interpreting a physical theory is zoning that space, picking out a subset of it that are the worlds possible according to the theory you interpret. What a scientific realist believes when she believes a theory is an interpretation of the theory. That's the point about believing the world is the way the theory says it is, entails believing a lot of things about uh, the possibilities, the modal structure of the theory, the possibilities it allows. Um, the scientific realist believes our world is one of the worlds possible according to the theory. And uh, the most famous, most venerable um, reason for realists give for why you should believe, why you should accept theories, why you should believe they're true in the world, is that uh, they're very, very successful. You think about it, there's all sorts of amazing things scientific theories have enabled us to do. And the best explanation the realist contends of the theory's many successes, an explanation, prediction, engineering, and so on, is that the world really is the way the theory, under her favorite interpretation, says it is. That's realism. Um, but what happens to this argument, sometimes called the miracles argument, if the theory in question is a theory that, like theories of QM infinity I've suggested, purchases different successes under different and rival interpretations? Um, then it seems like the warrant for belief in the theory derived from its successes gets attenuated. So a picture of what's happening interpretively with the theories of QM infinity might look more like this, where rather than there being a single winning interpretation it's equipped with, there's a bunch of different interpretations, some of which come to the fore in some circumstances, others of which come to the fore in other circumstances. Uh, there's one way the world is, it'd be crazy to, to, uh, to maintain otherwise, but that's consistent with there being a variety of collections of ways the world might be according to a theory, and uh, suggesting the best way to make a sense of Q infinity is uh, uh, by taking it to, rather than impose a simple, simple zoning on the space of possible worlds, to impose a multidimensional, uh, complicated zoning on the space of possible worlds. Um, so if theory, your favorite physical theory does as well as it does um, uh, by shifting its uh, uh, account of what's possible, what the laws are, um, how things fit together from circumstance to circumstance, 
if uh, different interpretations of your theory make sense of different parts of its success, then the warrant for belief constituted by its success isn't concentrated on a single interpretation. It's dispersed among the various interpretations that enable the theory to do what it does so well. And uh, for me, this, uh, this counsels a kind of rethinking of the terms of the scientific realism debate. Uh, one way to construe the scientific realism debate is as a debate over scientific virtue, the anatomy of scientific virtue, how scientific virtues fit together. Uh, cardinal question is how and to what extent is the virtue of truth implicated in other scientific virtues, explanatory room of consistency, simplicity? Uh, uh, how and to what extent is the virtue of truth implicated? Um, interestingly to me, in the list of scientific virtues, ambiguity typically doesn't appear. Uh, but I've just suggested ambiguity as a sort of scientific resource, that a theory that admits multiple interpretations thereby has at hand a multiplicity of ways it might respond to uh, the challenges it faces. Um, I'm going to invoke a, a, a notorious passage from near the end of the scientific image, uh, Ben Frossen's uh, uh, defense of uh, his... his uh, his constructive empiricism. So he's not a realist. He's imagining realists saying, come on, uh, you go as an account of why theories work so well. He's like, fine, I can give you an account of why theories work so well. Here it is. He writes, I claim that the success of current scientific theories is no miracle. It's not even surprising to the scientific Darwinist mind. For any scientific theory is born into a life of fierce competition, a jungle red in tooth and claw. Only the successful theories survive, the ones which, in fact, latched on to the actual regularities in nature. So we have the theories we have because they have this virtue of empirical adequacy of saving the phenomena. We don't need any more. Uh, don't need to attribute them any more virtues to make sense of their survival. Um, what I'm trying to suggest by lobbying to have ambiguity added to the list of scientific virtues is... Uh, Taking the uh, natural selection analogy even further, or maybe even abusing it even further, is that a theory that underdetermines its own its own interpretation is like a healthy breeding population. It has a, a shot at enough diversity to, under some interpretation or another, meet the variety of demands its scientific environment places on it. So, like survival, I'm suggesting, empirical success is a convoluted, chancy, and conditioned thing. And like genetic diversity, semantic indecision, vagueness, ambiguity, admitting having no interpretation that wins, situates the theory that possesses it to respond successfully to the changing circumstances on which a survival depends. Thank you. Okay, so we've got... Uh, thanks very much, Laura. Go ahead. Uh, plenty of time for questions, relatively speaking. Uh, we've got a microphone, at least one. Is that right? For two, one on the other side. If people would like to, uh, if anybody would like to raise a question, Jeremy, in the middle there, unfortunately. Mike. Thank you very much for the excellent talk. Uh, I had. Uh, a two-part question, really. One is um, the difference between a theory and perhaps a framework or scheme. Or some people would say QM infinity is a, a framework or scheme or lingua franca of much of modern physics. And when you get down to the more specific theory of 
that describes a cosmology or a piece of what you called homely statistical physics, that's where you would find a theory which might admit a single interpretation. And so there is a kind of question of whether the moral rides on an equivocation. Indeed, the average physicist hearing your presentation would probably feel that the, the, all you said about the subtlety, interest, variety of detailed applications and the way they differ from one another is a far cry from the uh, lovely graph paper pictures of modal reality. And the, I mean, cosmology was only one of several examples, and besides, everyone in that field would say that their cosmologies are only toy models of a theory of the world. So there is a sort of adjudication needed between the, the verbal and vaulting ambition of us philosophers to describe the world and the daily practice of the quantum field theorist who probably has a rather unambiguously interpretable particular QM infinity. Was that both parts? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, that, that that's totally a totally fair comment about the presentation. Um, with more time, I'd be more careful and more labored and try to provide you examples of one of the things I said is there's cases where in the same context with the same aim, there's no interpretation, no single interpretation that succeeds. Um, so one of them that I can get in pretty quickly, although you might reject it because it involves toy cosmological models, is uh, take Hawking radiation. It's amazing stuff. Uh, part of why it's amazing, amazing stuff is um, it serves as sort of uh, a signpost on the road to quantum gravity. Uh, uh, quantum gravity is notoriously impoverished of data. And uh, for people trying to develop theories of quantum gravity, the capacity to reproduce even roughly the equations of black hole thermodynamics serves as a sign they're working in the right direction. It serves as a kind of semi-empirical constraint. And I try to argue that uh, insofar as quantum field theory on curved space-time supports the important physical agenda of helping uh, point us towards future theories of quantum gravity uh, uh, by uh, helping us make sense, understand um, the phenomenon of black, black hole radiation, Hawking radiation. Uh, there's no single interpretation under which it does that. Uh, there's an interpretation that helps us understand uh, what the black hole looks from sufficiently looks like from sufficiently far away, what the sea of Hawking radiation looks like from sufficiently far away. But that interpretation is inconsistent with interpretations that enable to make sense of the project of semi-classical gravity by equipping the stress-energy tensor with an expect well-defined expectation value in states of the quantum field. So I, uh, I, I think your comment that there's an important distinction to be observed here between theoretical frameworks and actual physical theories is absolutely right. And I'm claiming that I, well, I'm claiming truly that I try <laughs> to make the argument succeed with respect to particular physical theories. So. David. So here's a, here's a way that the um, sort of hardline realist might want to sort of fight back against these conclusions, even, even granted the, the arguments. They might say something like this. Um, QM infinity is, a, is QM infinity because it's considering situations with infinitely many degrees of freedom, which is to say either 
it's considering theories um, right out to spatial infinity, or it's considering theories on all length scales, however short. And the realist might say, well, it would be hubristic in any case for us to regard any of our current theories as reliable used on that scales. We, don't, we, we expect our quantum field theories to break down at very short length scales. We also don't think, um, we certainly don't think space-time is really Minkowski. We don't even think it's really De Sitter. We think, goodness knows what's happening beyond the horizon. All we're, all we're asking of our theories is somehow they can model the finitely many degrees of freedom accessible between some given short length scale and some given long length scale. And it's fine, the realist might say, I'm not necessarily advocating this myself, it's fine to use theories of infinities in there. It's often much easier to take something to infinity than it is to take it to 10 to the power of 47. But of course, and of course, there might, be, there might be lots of ways to do that in different circumstances. And so you might be able to attribute the various different strategies we're using here, not to various different claims about the actual physics of our world, but to do with the, the, the usefulness of various different idealization and approximation schemes to, get, schemes to apply the actual physics of our world. Uh, that seemed, I, I think that would be a good move <laughs> on the part of the realist. Uh, here's, you might not like this, but here's a way to characterize the move. Well, okay, you're putting too, weight on the lessons, too much weight on the lessons you're drawing because you're drawing them about non-fundamental physics. You're drawing them about this heuristic bit of physics where, of course, there's going to be a lot of opportunistic flim-flam. All right. Uh, 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 The question is whether the conclusions I'm drawing from these theories will extend to more fundamental physics. Uh, And I think that's an open question. I'd be perfectly happy for there to be theories of physics that aren't at all perplexing foundation. Well, I wouldn't be happy because I'd be out of a job, but I I, I wouldn't, uh, I think it's a possible future and not a horrible one if physics sort of figures all everything out in a perfectly stable and and coherent way. Um, So the question for us, because we can't see into the future, is what our expectation should be about the future of physics. And um, the bit about the end trying to suggest that ambiguity is a scientific virtue is meant to be a small bit of inductive evidence that future physical theories will share with these present heuristic scrabbling physical theories the feature that they're a little bit ambiguous because being a little bit ambiguous is a feature that enables physical theories to succeed. And one thing we know about, one thing we do know about the future physical theories is that they'll succeed. But yeah, the position that everything I'm making a big deal out of are uh, is temporary artifacts of the particular theories I'm looking at and not a generic feature of theories itself is uh, a, a t- totally fair suggestion and a totally conceivable yeah. possibility. Yeah. That's it. Ryan. I was uh, curious what you thought about the the extent to which the uniqueness problem was a uniquely quantum problem, or if it might be a problem in, in, in other theories as well. And at least in the case of position and momentum, I just uh, I, I myself don't know of an analog of the Stone von Neumann theorem in the classical context in which one asks, you know, instead of asking is Q and P that I've constructed in the shortened representation the only Q and P up to a natural notion of equivalence in quantum mechanics, one could ask, now having constructed a Q and P uh, on a classical symplectic manifold, is there just the only Q and P? And that's just a, I guess, comp- more, comp- I don't know of a theorem that is analogous to the Stone von Neumann, but it's kind of just a complicated way to ask, 
is the non-uniqueness thing really essentially quantum or yeah. can it happen in other non-quantum theories? Yeah. So I'm going to take this as a question not about theorems. I'm going to ask, give you an answer that doesn't engage the theorem part of the question. Um, so I suspect, and I wish I had done more work and were a better informed historian um, to back up the suspicion uh, that what's going on with theories of QM infinity is that they're dramatizing a more widespread predicament. Um, I mean, even with classical mechanics, it's different formulations of classical mechanics that sort of disagree with each other at the edges about how things go, and some of them work better in some cases, and others of them work better in other cases. And I would be pleased if uh, a lot of actual scientific practice, if you sort of came down from the heights and looked at what sorts of things scientific theories get used for uh, attentively with this possibility in view, you might start noticing more cases, not weird quantum cases, but theories we thought were tame and well understood, where uh, they're doing what they do is predicated on this sort of shiftiness about what the world is like. Uh, I mean, Mark Wilson's giant pink book can probably be read as uh, uh, giving a bunch of examples of this sort uh, with uh, physics avoidance is his, uh, his phrase, but there might be a way of translating that sort of idea into, uh, into, into this language. Uh, it's not that we're avoiding physics, it's that we're being a little bit uh, uh, permissive in uh, what, we what we're taking our theories to commit us to uh, say about the world. Could you pass it along to Simon? The, the mic? Brian? What, isn't it quicker? Oh, it went. Oh, I see. I'll shut you up then. <laughs> Right. Um, yeah, I think it was Ed Nelson, wasn't it, who said uh, first quantization is a mystery, but second quantization is a functor. Uh, is a what? <clears throat> and there is a certain sense in which the, there's a canonical process of second quantization, which uh, specifically in the non-relativistic case, so a non-relativistic quantum field theory. I'm just wondering, would you grant that there may be certain sectors of QM infinity that are not quite so subject? Oh, sure. To yeah. The, yeah. I, um, right. I, I, Grant their, yeah, uh, yeah so um, I'm trying to claim there exists theories that have this, to me, interesting feature. I've suggested in response to Brian, there might be even more theories than the ones I talk about in the book, but I'm not claiming it's an absolutely generic predicament of a theory of QM infinity, that uh, there's an exploitation by that theory of the representational resources afforded by non-unitarily inequivalent representations to pull off its task as physics. But, but I think it does invite, doesn't it, the question, well, what, what is it in QM infinity that has the characteristics that you focused on? And one of them might be relativistic quantum theory. So it's something to do with the relativity, the addition of relativity to quantum, to quantum theory. But of course, that doesn't cover all of the cases in condensed matter physics and the thermodynamic limit. But if then the thermodynamic limit, typically, if you're really looking at the infinite particle limit, so this takes you to something more like a non-separable Hilbert space representation. So I, I, mean, I just wonder whether there might be a different way of carving this up so that you kind of isolate what it is that's giving rise to this multiplicity of different kinds of representations and so forth. Maybe there's, you know, so it's trying to, Find out what what is it about yeah. these particular combinations of quantum theory, mechanics, fields, particles, infinite limits. Infinite, I mean, it feeds into David's question actually. You know, distinguishing between infinite volume limits and mm -hmm. yeah. So um, 
I don't, I wouldn't want to say it's relativity per se or even infinity per se. So you can get non-equivalent representations if you try to quantize a bead on a circle. There's stories about the Arlov-Bohm effect where you exploit those non-equivalent representations to accommodate the phenomena. Something as moronic and simple as uh, mass moving on one linear dimension, easiest case there is. Uh, if you drop the requirement that your representations uh, of the vile relations be continuous, um, that is, if you drop the requirement that you can recover canonical commutation relations from them, then you can have representations unitarily inequivalent to the standard Schrodinger representation that make possible amazing things. Um, we all hear at our mother's knee that uh, in quantum mechanics there's no point-valued eigenstates of position. In these non-Schrodinger representations of the particle on the line, you can have representations where there are point-valued eigenstates of position. So you want to take like, the Bohm theorists seriously. You want to take seriously a way of thinking about quantum mechanics where there's exact positions. You, need, you might consider working in these representations. Um, so that's a case where there's unitarily inequivalent representations of the most vanilla example there is. And there might be some pressure coming from maybe foundational attitudes towards quantum mechanics for exploiting some of the uh, representational uh, latitude afforded by those non-unitarily equivalent representations. Uh, Hans Halverson, by the way, has written some fantastic articles about, he calls it the position representation. If you want to look into non-Schrodinger representations and their features and what they're good for, that would be a fantastic place to start. Gentlemen on the second row. Thank you very much for that paper. You, at one point, I think you talked of uh, classical mechanics and and of particles moving in one dimension. Uh, how do you see the difference of the concept of dimensionality between classical uh, mechanics and quantum mechanics? And in either of these possible worlds that, 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 that are possible, is a one-dimensional world possible? Yeah, I'd, I'd say the one-dimensional worlds in each case are toy examples. They illuminate something about, uh, about the theory, uh, uh, mathematical possibilities. I don't think our world is, is one-dimensional, um, uh, but I think we can... There are good ways to illustrate the structures of the kinds of theories I'm interested in because there are ways to illustrate those structures that don't import complications like you can turn right. Uh, um, uh, yeah, so uh, is a one-dimensional world possible? It might be, in part of what I think is possibility isn't a very rigid idea. And, uh, I think there's sense of possible where it's possible. Uh, it's not a, from our world, it's a pretty remote possibility. Uh, but in terms of illustrating points about physics and philosophy, it's a remote possibility that's nevertheless illustrative of significant features. Uh, we should swap over soon, but it wouldn't be a philosophy session without a, your attacking a straw man. Uh, <laughs> Objection, so let me make one. Uh, it did seem like, with respect to the realist, uh, I mean, pretty dumb realist that you were talking mm -hmm. about, um, who thinks that current theories are true. Uh, certainly, no sensible realist thinks that, I think. Uh, I mean, they just think there's something true about them. It may be terribly vacuous, but right. that's the, And after all, they want to be realist about previous theories that are now rejected, and our, which our current theories tell us are definitely false. So, it seemed to me that you were taking an exceptionally strong real, uh, realist view and a very strong realist 
interpretation of the Nile Miracles argument. Yeah, no, that, I, that, that's fair enough. So consider a more sophisticated realist. Uh, like me. Right. Um, <laughs> a highly sophisticated realist who doesn't uh, go hook, line, and sinker for the current theories, but says there's something about them right. that, that's latching on to things, say, their structure. Uh-huh. Um, the way to make problems for them, <laughs> uh, I think I've got, is uh, uh, insofar as there's no winning interpretation, there's real questions about what their structure is. Um, yeah, yeah. It's something with the benefit of hindsight. We get to what, it's whatever they're going to share with their successors, but we can't tell what that is at this point. And uh, the more fluid the structures doing important explanatory work are for a given present theory, the less grip I have on what the structure a sophisticated realist would be uh, moved to invest his or her his or her his or her belief in. We can talk some more later. Yeah. Uh, let, let's. Uh... Thank Laura now uh, for both the talk and for the answers to questions, and then we'll move on. Thanks very much. Well, presumably there's some changeover in the slides, is that right? Or is it what you're I'm going to use Laura's slides, actually, and just give her a different interpretation. But if there are slides, slides, that would be even better. Uh, yeah, sure, why not? How do I get... Perfect. Oh, great. Okay, well, our second uh, speaker and the other co-winner of the, 19, of the 2013 Lacrosse Award is David Wallace from University of Oxford, and uh, he's going to speak on quantum theory and many worlds interpretation. A title which could be equally phrased as placeholder for me to work out what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> okay, quantum theory by a lot of measures, and I use quantum theory here as a, a general term to cover both quantum mechanics and non-relativistic systems and the more sophisticated theories that Laura's talking about. Quantum theory is, by most measures, a pretty good candidate for best theory ever in science. It's explanatory across an incredibly wide range of domains. It makes quantitative novel predictions of a huge number of kinds. Whenever we've tested those quantitative novel predictions, we've found them correct. And many of those predictions are to shocking degrees of accuracy. There's another sense in which quantum theory is the scandal of science because there seems to be some sense in which it doesn't do what self-respecting scientific theories had better do, which is tell us something about what's going on in the world. Attempts to take quantum theory and use it as a way of understanding what's going on in the world seem to run into profound trouble. And let's just quickly remind ourselves of how that goes. The beginning of the trouble, the original sin, if you like, is that quantum theory has a rule that says if A is a possible state of a system and B is a possible state of a system, then a bit of A plus a bit of B is also a possible state of a system. And to go straight to the sort of most vivid and infamous example of that, if we've got some system where live cat is the state we're supposed to use if the system is a system with a living cat in it, and if dead cat is the state we're supposed to use for that same system, if in fact something unfortunate has happened to the cat, then quantum theory says there are states like A live cat plus B dead cat, and that represents... Well, what does it represent? A cat that's alive and dead at the same time? Ever seen a cat like that? It's not clear we understand what it means for a cat to be alive and dead at the same time, and if we do understand what it means, it doesn't seem to be the kind of thing cats do. Okay, so there's an immediate thought you might have here. Hang on a second, there's a tension between those two claims. A minute ago, I said, this is the best theory ever. Now I'm saying, it predicts that cats are alive and dead at the same time. 
And to make matters worse, you might hope that the theory's dynamics is such that things like this don't happen much in practice. Schrodinger hoped this. No such luck. The dynamics of the theory say things like this happen all the time. Um, Just generically, situations where I have a microscopic world doing the sort of thing the microscopic world does, if I look at it in the right way, what the theory says, what the theory seems to say, is I get states like this, macroscopic superpositions. Superpositions of states describing one kind of macroscopic going on with states describing a completely different kind of of macroscopic going on. Okay, so then how in that case can I possibly claim that the theory is so empirically successful? Well, the answer is the theory has a sort of fudge in it. It's got a rule for for saying what you should do with states like this. The rule sometimes gets called the Born rule. It says, if you measure a superposition, when you look at a system in a superposition, then those terms in front of the states, the A's and the B's in the previous expression, which get called the amplitudes, what you're supposed to do is take the square, basically, take the square of that number and read that as a probability. So the way we're supposed to make sense of this state is to say when we measure the system, the probability of the cat being alive is A squared, probability of the cat being dead is B squared, mod A squared and mod B squared for the pedants among you. Okay, so then you might think, all right, here's a nice, comfortable, safe thing we could do. We could say, fine. Macroscopic superpositions aren't a problem. They're just to be understood probabilistically. When I say the state of the system is A, live cat, plus B, dead cat, I don't mean it's a weird cat that you've never seen before. I just mean it might be a live cat, it might be a dead cat. I'm not sure which one it is, but I'm sure there's a probability of each. Awful tempting. That probabilistic interpretation looks just fine for macroscopic superpositions. It looks great. It's got problems. And the one-word statement to the problems is interference. At the heart of the dynamics of quantum mechanics is the fact that amplitudes, these numbers at the front of superposition terms, the A's and the B's in my state, can reinforce, they can cancel out, they can do things that probabilities aren't allowed to do. I can have situations where a particle is in a superposition of going through the top slit and going through the bottom slit of some two-slit experiment, If it definitely goes through the top slit, I get a certain boring pattern. If it goes through the bottom slit, I get a boring pattern. So whichever slit it goes through, if it's it's got some probability of going through the top slit um, um, and some probability of going through the bottom slit, I don't need to know which those probabilities are because whichever slit it goes through, I get a boring pattern. And the reality is that when I put a superposition through, when I have a superposition of top slit and bottom slit, I get an interesting pattern. Interference is right at the heart of how we use quantum mechanics. It makes the probabilistic understanding of the quantum state kind of tricky. And 80 years of work have have honed and refined that kind of tricky into something more like basically impossible. Mathematical results like um, going to classic results like the Koch and Specker theorem or Gleason's theorem through to the recent celebrated PBR theorem of Pusey and Barrett and Rudolph in my judgment, come pretty close to putting the nails in the coffin of the idea I can make a probabilistic understanding of microscopic states. And that, the way I see it, is the quantum measurement problem. We can't interpret microscopic quantum states as probabilities because of interference. We can't interpret macroscopic states, it seems, as anything other than probabilities because of Schrodinger cat states, because of live plus dead at the same time states. So what do we actually do in physics? My claim is in practice in physics, we do something like this. We shift 
in an incoherent fashion between using one reading and using another. In situations where interference matters, but where superpositions are not macroscopic, we treat the quantum state as physical. In situations where the um, superpositions are macroscopic, we treat it as probabilistic. In situations where it's neither macroscopic nor um, where interference matters, we kind of treat it agnostically, and we rely on the results of decoherence theory to guarantee that we're not going to run into situations where we need to do both at the same time. As a matter of calculational practice, as a, this works well as a recipe. But if we want to actually understand the theory as a theory of the world, to understand it not necessarily as something which is true, but even that we understand well enough to be true, then we have a problem. Because this does not look like the kind of way a theory, a theory can be that is a coherent account of what systems in the world are actually doing. So what can we do? Well, here's something we could do. We could change the philosophy. You might be thinking, well, something's philosophically too straightforward, too naive about this idea that scientific theories are just straightforward descriptions of reality. There's a bunch of things we could do to change that approach. We could become operationalists and say theories are just gadgets to predict the result of experiments. There's some problems with that, but we could try doing that. We could follow Bohr insofar as we can understand him and say that the, uh, I am allowed to give a description of reality, but the description of reality is constrained in certain ways, and I'll give different descriptions according to the experimental context I'm working in. We could say so much for classical logic and many other things. Here's something else we could do. We could change the physics. We could say, well, if your theory predicts the cats are alive and dead at the same time, it can't be such a good theory after all, can it? It needs something changing or it needs something added. Maybe it needs some new dynamics, the famous collapse of the wave function. Maybe it needs some extra hidden variables, some more things that really represent live cats or dead cats. Maybe it needs things to travel backwards through time and sort our problems out for us. Change the philosophy, change the physics. This looks like a research strategy. Lots of physicists care about these problems. Lots of philosophers care about these problems. So the physicists can go and look at changing the physics. They can work out how to modify or extend quantum mechanics so that it's changed into a theory that works. Meanwhile, the philosophers can go and change the philosophy. They can treat all of this quantum weirdness as a wake-up call to the naivety of their philosophical position. Sounds great. Things haven't quite turned out that way. The physicists, it turns out, are pretty keen on change the philosophy strategies. <laughs> The philosophers, it turns out, are pretty keen on change the physics strategies. Perhaps this shows the imagination and desire to think outside the box of both communities. <laughs> Perhaps it shows that some people are underestimating the difficulties. But OK, if we don't change the physics, we don't change the philosophy, what are we going to do? Everett had an idea. Back 50 years plus ago, Everett had an idea that I think changed the game. And putting this in horrendously anachronistic terms, Everett said, well, are you sure you know that we don't see cats that are alive and dead at the same time? Are you sure that the claim that a cat's alive and dead at the same time is contradicted by observation? And here's a kind of intuitive way in which we could say, yes, Hugh, yes, we are sure. Because intuitively, I know what it looks like if I were to look at a cat that was alive and dead at the same time. It would be like seeing a cat that was fuzzy. It would be like seeing double. It would be like being very drunk. 
Intuition tells us that the cats can't be alive and dead at the same time on pain of contradicting observations. But observation is one more physical process. Intuition is not such a great way to work out what happens in physical processes. Here's a good way to work out what happens in physical processes. Ask your best physical theory. What does quantum theory say happens when I look at a cat that's alive and dead at the same time? It says that I, too, enter a superposition, that I end up in a state of seeing a cat alive and seeing a cat dead at the same time. And furthermore, it tells me that that superposition is, an in, is entangled with the state of the cat. So the state of me plus the cat is now a superposition of cat alive, I see cat alive, plus cat dead, I see cat dead. And when tearfully or untearfully um, I go and talk to Laura about the state of the cat, then Laura ends up in a superposition of consoling me about the death of the cat and asking what the fuss is about. And as more and more physical systems interact with us, and because of the ubiquity of the interactions in play here, this will happen whether we want it to or not, quantum theory tells us that the quantum state of the whole region around us, of the whole planet, if you like, ends up in a superposition of two terms, each one of which looks an awful lot like a classical set of goings-on in which the cat is in a definite state, one alive, one dead. In the words, it looks an awful lot as if what happens when macroscopic superpositions happen is the system's quantum state describes two non-interacting, non-messing with each other branches of physical reality. It looks like superposition becomes multiplicity. It looks rather like a many worlds theory. Okay, so then there are philosophical concerns one might have. And the first one one might have is to say, well, hang on a second. There's lots of nasty sleight of hand in that description. Um, what we have here is a superposition. What we have is indeterminacy. You can't jump from saying um, there's a superposition of two different goings on to saying both goings on are happening at the same time. And one thing, and you can try to solve that problem by changing the theory again, but I think that's a dead end. The right way to understand that problem is just to think a bit harder about what's going on in physics when we start talking about higher level emergent objects like cats and dogs and people. And let me tell you a parable to show that actually the way in which we might want to see our physics going from superposition to multiplicity is the kind of thing we can see within the physics itself if you look at its dynamics. Here's a different and less well-known philosophical scandal, the paradox of electromagnetism. Because electromagnetism is also a theory where if this is a possible state of a system and that's a possible state of the system, then at least in the vacuum, this and that is a possible state of the system and its dynamics carries on being linear in the way of quantum theory. So, here's a possible quantum state. A, it represents a pulse of radio waves from the Earth to the Moon. Here's B. B is a pulse of radio waves going from Mars to Venus. Here is a superposition of A and B, a macroscopic superposition. What does this state represent? It's not a pulse of radiation going from Mars to Venus, and it's not a pulse of radiation going from Earth to Moon. It's somehow a pulse of radiation doing both things at once. It's a radio wave in two places at once. That's crazy. We can't understand it. Well, nonsense, of course. There's nothing mysterious at all about the superposition state. It just represents two pulses of radiation. Why does it do it? Not because electromagnetism um, contains within it, at, at some fundamental level, machinery that says, in this situation, the theory changes its representational role. 
in this situation I say there are two pulses rather than one. It does it simply, prosaically, because the chunk of radiation heading from Earth to Moon and interacting with various goings-on on the Moon when it arrives, and the pulse of radiation going from Mars to Venus and interacting with various goings-on on Venus when it arrives, don't have much to do with each other. They describe dynamically autonomous sets of goings-on. If I put them into interference with one another, if I directed both of them at the same radio receiver, things would look pretty different. But as long as they're basically getting on with their own business, I could treat them as separate chunks of reality. They, 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 they describe separate structures. There is a structure, a structural feature of the radiation field, which looks like a pulse, and then over here, and there's another one over here. And that suggests a picture of quantum mechanics. Because in quantum mechanics, we also have machinery to tell us, actually tell us quite robustly, the machinery that gets called decoherence theory, that when I have macroscopic superpositions, and as they interact with larger and larger surroundings, they really do describe separate parallel goings-on that don't have a lot to do with each other. They're dynamically isolated from one another. Not dynamically isolated in physical space, as with the radiation field, but dynamically isolated for all that. And how do we know that? Our best physics says so. So physics tells us that the quantum state, the description of the world given by quantum mechanics, when we look at it at large scales, at macroscopic scales, at cat scales, has the structure of, to be picturesque about it, a branching multiverse. Separate branches are obeying dynamics that looks pretty classical. And philosophy tells us, or at least it should tell us, that the way we should understand higher-order ontology in general, the way we should understand when large-scale objects are represented in our physics, is a matter of finding in our physics autonomous, high-order structure and dynamics with the right structural features to look like high-level physics. So that's the picture of the world, which, following Everett, I claim we can see in the quantum theory we have without any need to modify that quantum theory. And the first part of my book is basically an attempt to flesh out the physics and the philosophy that drives that claim. But there's, or at least there's generally believed to be an Achilles heel in that story. Even if you grant this account, even if you grant that structurally speaking, the world has the structure of branching realities. And therefore, you, and even if you grant the structuralists' account of higher-order ontology. So you say, yes, quantum mechanics describes the experiment with the cat as saying um, the cat splits into two, one alive and one dead. Nonetheless, that doesn't seem to be what quantum theory told us to expect, because quantum theory told us to expect something probabilistic. It told us that not that there would be definitely two cats, one alive, one dead. It told us that there should be a 50% chance of a live cat and a 50% chance of a dead cat, or an A squared chance and a B squared chance more generally. And even if we accept that the theory will not make it, this branching theory will not make any claims that contradict any particular observation of quantum mechanics, because the theory does tell us that I will see not both a live cat and dead cat, but any given version of me will see the cat either alive or dead. Nonetheless, there doesn't seem to be any home in the theory for probabilities. Call this the probability problem. The second part of my book is very much about trying to solve that. I want to give a sketch of that solution here. 
But before beginning that sketch, there's a double standards worry to watch out for. So here's something you might think. Okay, um, probability looks really profoundly mysterious in the context of Everettian quantum mechanics. And of course, probability is totally unproblematic and straightforward and just fine, thanks, in the rest of physics. So before worrying about this, I'd probably better just go back to the philosophy and just check what probability is. I guess this was probably sorted out by Plato, but I'd better check the references. It turns out, of course, that probability in general in physics, in science, in philosophy is pretty confusing. And so our standard for checking how puzzling probability is in the many worlds theory, in, in the average interpretation, in quantum theory, had better be how puzzling is in quantum theory measured by the metric of how puzzling it is generally. And here's a kind of crude sketch of how puzzling it is generally. You could say, look, there are two, this is simplifying a vast literature, but you could say there are two problems of probability in general. First question, what, if anything, are probabilities? What is the categorical basis for probabilities? What are the physical facts about the world that ground probabilities? What kinds of things are probabilities? And secondly, once we've found what the probabilities are, why do they play the role of probabilities? And what do I mean by the role of probabilities? I mean something like, how is it that this feature of the world that I call probability is the kind of thing I learn about by doing finitely many experiments and counting relative frequencies? And how is it that this categorical thing in the world that I call probability is the kind of thing I allow to guide my actions? Why is it that if you tell me with probability 0.999 this atom is not going to decay in the next 10 minutes, and with probability 0.002 that atom's not going to decay in the next 10 minutes, why is it that if I have to bet my life on one of them decaying, I allow those numbers to guide me? David Lewis codifies this in a systematic way in the principal principle. David Papineau breaks it down nicely into the inferential link between probability and action and the decision-theoretic link between frequencies and probabilities. This what question and this why question at a simplified level are a way of getting at what an account of probability in quantum theory or outside quantum theory needs to give us. Let's look at how we're doing on the what question. It's one strategy, frequentism. Probabilities are long-run relative frequencies. And that gets us somewhere, but that word long-term turns out to be doing a lot of work. Probabilities can't be finite lengths of frequencies, not straightforwardly. But if probabilities start being frequencies in the infinite long run, we run into the problem that the infinite long run is not instantiated in the world. And so trying to work out ways of constructing probabilities from frequencies and anything other than artificial and toy situations is harder than it looks. I think perhaps the most sophisticated version of the table here is something like David Lewis's best systems analysis that says, well, we want the best system that fits all the data, we'll be guided by the frequencies, we'll be guided by the symmetries, we'll be guided by simplicity. But I think it's fair to say, and even its defenders would accept, that that's at best an embryonic project. We could say, look, it's a bare postulate we could say there is no categorical base of probability. It's just a primitive that there's stuff in the world called probability. I haven't mentioned here, but I could, we could also look at and um, try to somehow read our probabilities off claims of symmetries in the world. But again, that project turns out to be hard to make work fully. Here's Everett's answer. Probabilities are mod-squared amplitudes in regimes where decoherence guarantees that they obey the probability calculus. 
we have a solid understanding of what the mod squared amplitudes are in quantum mechanics dynamically that, are, that abstracts away from probability, and we have theorems to prove and models to work in to tell us in a whole bunch of situations this particular antecedently understood categorical magnitude has the right mathematical structure to play the probability role. So claim, if more we want from the what question is to find a thing in the world that has the right formal features to play probability, every interpretation of quantum mechanics, or quantum mechanics thought of as a physical description of the world, is doing quite well, really. What about the why problem? Here's David Lewis almost giving a counsel of despair here. Is there any way that any human magnitude, like you know, just categorical local feature of the world, could fill the chance role? So anyway, an unhumean magnitude could. What I fear is the answer is no both times. Yet how can I reject the very idea of chance when I know full well that each tritium atom has a certain chance of decay at any moment? In the general picture of probability, we've made only baby steps at seeing how it is that particular categorical features of the world could be the kind of thing that can play the role of probability. And it's pretty common, I think, in contemporary philosophy of probability just to say this is a primitive an unexplained bare posit. Yes, this feature of the world plays the probability role. No, don't ask why. Here's quantum theory. We have a bunch of strategies in play here. We have mathematical results that claim to show from considerations of locality, show from the, from, from the claim that... that, that Questions about the goings-on here in probabilistic terms shouldn't be influenced by things space-like separated. The letters derive the fact that the mod squared amplitudes play the, pro- play the probability role. Jurek has old results of this kind. Sean Cowan and Chip Sevens have more recent results. Chip Sevens is a student of mine and of Laura's, so there's some elegance of that in this situation. We have a bunch of results saying, ask yourself what a rational agent considering quantum mechanics would do and which, on various assumptions, purport to prove that that rational agent would condition their actions on the quantum mod squared amplitudes, would regard frequency data as evidence about the mod squared amplitudes. This is a story that goes back to David Deutsch. Hilary Greaves has worked on it. Wayne Merveld's worked on it. The central third of my book is largely devoted to it. And the end state of that second third of the book is what I call the Everettian epistemic theorem, which very, very roughly says, if you've got an agent who obeys the kind of decision theoretic axioms we postulate in standard decision theory, and not necessarily who believes quantum mechanics to be true, but who regards it as a live epistemic possibility, as something they're considering, that agent will treat mod squared amplitudes in that theory as they would probabilities, which is to say they'll plug them into Lewis-style principle-principle rules. They'll regard frequency data as evidence of them. And in particular, they'll regard empirical evidence for quantum mechanics as evidence supporting the average interpretation of quantum mechanics in the ordinary scientific way. Are these theorems challengeable? Well, sure. I mean, they're theorems. They're mathematically rigorous. They might even be valid. One can hope. Um, One can question the assumptions that go into them. One can worry about how convincing or reliable those are. And that's a legitimate concern to have. But I think it's worth saying that 
the right metric of comparison there is not to one's ideal, totally satisfactory understanding of probability. It's to the status quo. It's to our level of understanding of probability in non-quantum physics. And I would want to make the claim, not necessarily that you understand probability perfectly in quantum theory, but that we understand it at least as well as we understand it in the classical world. So that's the Everett interpretation of quantum mechanics. And I want to claim, and this is the conclusion of the book, that it's actually rather conservative, despite its extraordinary weirdness. It's conservative in the following sense. It doesn't require us to change the physics. It doesn't require us to change the philosophy. It takes the theory literally and sees where it goes. It does, however, run into a wild clash with common sense. Our common sense picture of the world is not at all compatible with the Everett interpretation. So much for common sense. Our notion of common sense was developed for use on the savannas of Africa. It's not good at telling us what the universe is like. That's all I want to say about quantum mechanics. Let me just conclude by saying that this is a picture of the savannas of Africa. It's actually in Etosha in Namibia. We were there this, uh, this, this summer. We had a marvellous time. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the John Latz, the Latz's Foundation for paying for it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, so, as before, we now have... It's keeping time so well. It's really easy being a chair. Uh, <laughs> now, it's time for questions. Uh, yeah, Hasek, Hasek Chang. Thank you for the excellent lecture, David. Um, this is not a new or original question, but I, I'm just interested to hear what your view on it mm. is. So the question is, um, what empirical evidence is there that quantum theory applies at all to cat-sized objects? In particular, do we have empirical evidence that cats and dogs and human brains are capable of superposition? Yeah, good. Put it this way, um, if, we were to ever, if we were to ever have evidence that the principles of quantum mechanics fail on us, um, in those scales, then game over for the Everett interpretation. We do have evidence that a lot of the rules of quantum mechanics apply in those systems. If we want to understand the various components of those systems, we absolutely apply quantum mechanics to them. If we want to understand, you know, quantum mechanics is being used all over the place in our best physics of cats and dogs and brains. Um, in fact, actually, one of the really interesting developments in quantum mechanics in the last few years, I think, is the evidence that quantum mechanical uh, entanglement phenomena are actually playing quite an important point in living systems at length scales much bigger than we thought they were, and, and plausibly um, in, in situations of photosynthesis in various functions in the brain. Does that guarantee that the superposition principle applies at those scales? No, it doesn't. Um, but the only theory we have at the moment that describes those systems is one that's working really, really well every time you try it, and um, which does have the superposition principle in it. So it's dead. So what we should be doing, I take it, is putting pressure on the superposition principle. We should be testing it in more and more exotic circumstances at larger and larger scales. And any time we find a failure in it, that's going to be an epical moment in physics. But I think we ought to need to confront the fact that we, that we haven't found that failure. We've kept doing things. Insofar as you can't solve the measurement problem ever at style, then you, you can say, well, even though I haven't found a failure of the superposition principle, Something like a failure of the superposition principle or the existence of hidden variables or something like that has to be true 
Because I know by introspection, or I know by observation, or I know by the absurdity of it, that the superposition principle must fail, must fail somewhere. The evidence interpretation tells us that we have absolutely no evidence from observation that the superposition principle fails. So our best theory has it in it. Our best theory says cats and dogs can be in superpositions and indeed are all the time. What epistemic attitude we should have to our best theory is a perfectly coherent question in philosophy of science. But it's important to see that we can perfectly well make sense of our best theories describing that. It's empirically fine for our best theory to say that. Brian. Owen Roberts. This is also uh, a slightly naive perspective had on that um, from a certain perspective, the types of things that we really know a lot about are probabilities given to us by quantum mechanics. And the types of things that we have very little empirical experience with are the way that superpositions are. <laughs> and whatever it seems to be asking us to do is commit to be a realist about the second thing and an anti, you know, kind of a, uh, we're going to take it to be subjective, the first thing. So the probabilities are now kind of coming out of decision, decision theoretic things that are kind of personal, they have to do with my own kind of mental states and things. Uh, so doesn't that feel a little backwards? I think that would be a problem. Um, I think it's a serious misconception about the decision-theoretic strategy in quantum mechanics and a, um, and a misconception that I think some of, its, some of its advocates, including earlier time slices of me, are responsible for helping develop. But I don't actually think that the decision-theoretic strategy in the Everett interpretation tells us that probabilities are subjective at all. What are probabilities? They're mod-squared amplitudes of branches in the decoherent limit. Um, I guess limit's a dangerous word to have in this context, in situations where decoherence has happened quite a lot. Um, so those, those, are, those are perfectly objective features of the world, and they're just as much um, present even if all humans are wiped out, or if there never were any humans, or in branches where there are no humans. What's the probability argument doing there? It's operationalizing the question of what would need, what would need to be true to understand how it is and why it is that those things are probabilities. And it's worth noting, actually, just as a matter of the discourse here, that one's driven to the decision-theoretic way of understanding this really only by an unwillingness on the part of one's interlocutor to take seriously or, or to take sufficiently charitably the idea these things could just be probabilities. What's really doing the work at the core of the decision-theoretic ideas isn't decision theory, it's symmetry. I mentioned earlier that I can give that one of the strategies classically to understand probability has been probability via symmetry. One way of understanding why that never succeeds is ultimately in the classical world something breaks the symmetry because something has to happen rather than, rather than another thing. That of course isn't true in the Everett interpretation. And if you're prepared to grant a sufficient amount about the coherence of probability being present in the Everett interpretation, you can derive the Born rule directly through symmetry type arguments without ever mentioning decision theory. Decision theory is there to give you sort of an, an ironclad um, pushback against the claim that probability is incoherent makes no sense to the theory. So I wouldn't, so, so, so that, but I wouldn't want to say that tells us it's subjective at all. And if you think of it from the Lewisian point of view, um, for Lewis, you can regard the, um, the um, principal principle as a functional definition of chance. I mean, chances for Lewis would be something like a certain kind of frequentist thing, um, or frequentist levied with certain other considerations, leavened with certain other considerations. It's a perfectly physical um, categorical magnitude. It's just that what makes it true that it deserves the name chance is something about how it plugs into the principal principle.
There we go. Nice little triad over there. So starting with Alex further. Thank you very much. So I have a question about whether if your interpretation of what's going on is true, it, would, it should make us change a lot of our judgments about what to do. So um, if you tell me, Alex, if you uh, take this pill, there's a 50% chance you'll die, and a 50% chance you'll live, that may make me think one way about certain things. If instead you tell me, Alex, if you take this pill, there's, uh, you will both be alive in one branch of the universe and dead in another branch. I might see that very differently. Um, me both going on to live and die in different branches of the universe is very different, I think, as a proposition of, of what's about to happen. Mm. Then there's a 50% chance that I will live and a 50% chance that I will die. For mm. example, I might think that at least in one branch of the universe, my, my projects will continue, the, wonder, the ideas that I'm busy developing, etc., the book I'm about mm. to publish, etc., will all be completed, and that's most important. Whereas I have no guarantee of that under the probabilistic interpretation. So, yeah, I guess I think you get the question. Yeah, I get it. Okay, I'm actually going to separate it out a little bit. So just um, let, let me temporarily modify your example so as to separate out two separate things in play. Let me modify your example so it's something like 50% um, chance that I'm rich and 50% chance I'm poor versus me being both rich and poor in two branches. So the same decision theoretic arguments that are in play in, uh, in just thinking about the probability rules here would tell you that you've got the same kind of reasons pushing you to say that your, your range of strategies in, um, in that situation has the same formal structure as your range of strategies in the, the non- uh, the, the non-branching case. So it's still the case. And at, at, the, at the idealization that in a probabilistic world, what you should do is something like put utilities on possible outcomes and weight them by probabilities, then you'll do something formally the same in many worlds quantum mechanics. That's compatible with saying that now you know about many worlds quantum mechanics, you should radically change your weightings of branches. You might, you might think that now that I know that what I'm weighting is something... Uh, that's metaphysically very different from what I thought it was, then you might radically change your weightings down. And, that, and that's fine, and the ever interpretation per se doesn't, doesn't say anything about whether you should do that. Call me callous, I don't actually think we ought to. Um, that doesn't really turn on my take on quantum mechanics. It probably take, turns on some kind of, I don't know, vaguely functionist, vaguely Wittgensteinian feeling about our, our reasons and, 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 and beliefs not being as theoretical as they might seem to be. So I think... It, it, actually, it's not that I've discovered I was wrong to think that there's a 50% chance I'll be rich and a 50% chance I'll be poor. It's just I was wrong about the metaphysical basis of what it meant to say 50% um, chance rich, 50% chance poor. But that metaphysical basis wasn't doing a lot of work in why it was that I had that kind of set of preferences and, and desires. But I'm not desperately committed to that, and I think somebody who radically rejected that, that sort of you know, um, functionalist way... Um, almost quietest way of thinking about these things could perfectly well accept the ever interpretation on scientific epistemic grounds and indeed radically change their behaviour pattern as a consequence. And the reason I changed the example was to separate out the, the sort of special case of whether my, my dying in, um, in a particular branch is something I should not care about because I'll still carry on living in other branches. This is what gets called the, the quantum Russian roulette example sometimes. I think those arguments are very... Those arguments in particular... I don't think of Apis Ways. I think they actually turn on quite philosophically naive views about what's philosophically important about death. I think there's a sort of certain very, very hedonic picture about why I care about living and dying, on which they're true, but I don't think they're generally true. But I think the interesting part of the example is just the, 
should I change my ethics just generally because these things look particularly um, look really different. So behind Alex, and then it's, you might as well leave the mic there because it's coming forward to Laura after. Uh, you, you described the uh, interference problem um, in the context of a young slit type problem. Yeah. Uh, and you've explained why you think that's a problem for the standard probabilistic interpretation of quantum mechanics. Um, I wasn't entirely clear about how the multiverse interpretation solves that problem. Right. Okay, so, so um, let me say firstly, I think that um, there isn't such a thing as the standard interpretation of quantum mechanics. In particular, I don't think the probabilistic interpretation is standard. I think what's standard is a sort of inchoate practice that's probabilistic in some contexts and not in others. Um, however, uh, the many worlds interpretation doesn't doesn't say anything particular to help you visualize or understand interference phenomena. It's not, as I read it, any claim about microscopic goings-on. It doesn't say that the world consists of many parallel universes at the micro level. And in particular, it doesn't say that there are, there's a whole bunch of worlds where the atom goes through one slit and a whole bunch of worlds where it goes through the other slit. It just says that what's going on in the slit is described by, you know, it's, it's a, the, the, the quantum state of the system is the state of a physical system. What can I say about that physical system? Well, I can certainly say it involves excitation of degrees of freedom um, in, bo in, in both regions of the slit, and then I can say, well, its dynamics are like this. Um, can we visualize that in some semi-classical way? Well, in some cases we can, but in the, in the young slit experiment case, I don't think we can particularly. That was never, as I see it, what the measurement problem was about. There's nothing... The measurement problem was never an attempt to domesticate the metaphysics of microscopic quantum mechanics. It was an, it was, it's fine to say, well, what's going on in the microscopic case is that the world is described structurally in such and such a way and dynamically in such and such a way, and insofar as we can't visualise it tough. Again, you didn't need that to hunt zebras. But... Um, so, 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 so I think, I think the popularizations of the many worlds theory are all caught up with the fact that we, we directly understand these microscopic superpositions in many worlds terms. I think that's, that's picturesque but not really a necessary part of the story, and I think it often doesn't work. There, there, are, there are alternative interference experiments where, where you can give that description quite well. If I use the Mark Zender interferometer, you can give quite a good story, but um, I think that's, that's a convenient coincidence. Just a quick thought, if I may. Sure. Is, is, is what you're saying, in a sense, that the... That the um, Multiverse theory is more about probabilities than about quantum mechanics, more a general statement about how we understand probabilistic events. Oh, no, no, definitely not. Um, there's a reason my book's called The Emergent Multiverse. The universe is not, at the fundamental level, a multiverse. The interesting quantum mechanical things about the universe, the, the cool stuff um, that we do under Lake Geneva with entangled photons, that really relies on quantum mechanics. It relies on the fact that the universe is not a fundamental multiverse. The universe was really a multiverse all the way down, then it would really just be a fancy way of talking about stochastic dynamics. What's interesting is we have a theory which, at the fundamental level, is a physical theory and which only emergently looks like a probabilistic theory. Laura, and then Jeremy, and then we'll finish. Please. Yeah, Laura. Um, so let's talk about the role superpositions play in neurology and our, how our brains work. Oh, yeah. That got me thinking. I'm just going to ask. Uh, are there things we can find out about the quantum mechanics of brains, like about the orthogonality structures of brain states that code determinant beliefs or about their participation in decoherence dynamics that would spell trouble for your way of thinking about things? Um, I don't think so. I mean, um, well, look, it's going to depend on your philosophy of mind. Mine is uh, very functionalist. Um, if necessary, it's functionalist to the point of verging on behaviorism. 
Um, so I'm fine to say that if my physical theory delivers the fact that what the world looks like is a whole bunch of um, parallel classical worlds where macroscopically I'm saying these kind of things and you're saying these kind of things, then I, at that point I think it's, it's other people's business to explain how it is that the physical system, these physical systems um, behave in these kind of ways. And I'm, I'm entirely happy to have a, a really very functionalist conception of, of, of mental states things. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think there's um, uh, the, 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 there could be sort of introspective evidence for the failure of a theory that wouldn't be public evidence in the sense of showing up on chairs and tables evidence. I mean, having said which, I don't think it would be impossible for someone who had a much more, um, more a, a le- less, if you like, pseudo-behaviorist philosophy of mind to accept the evidence interpretation, but I think I'd, it might well be the devil was a bit in the details of what their story about high-level emergence looked like. I mean, sort of a quite functionalist story is doing a lot of work in my theory, and I'm happy to run that sort of version of functionalism more or less all the way to the races. Um, it's, I, it's probably stronger than I need, and one could probably draw it back in certain places. I'm, I'm sufficiently happy with that as a general way of doing science. I don't feel the need to, but it's the kind of project that, you know, if you're David Chalmers or something, who's, who's someone who's, who's thought about quantum mechanics and who's um, interested in these, these, these things and has structuralist stories about the brain for very different reasons, then it would be interesting to know quite how far this sort of account does or doesn't go. Is it quick, Jeremy? Um, I think so. Okay, good. I was wondering if I was to say this to the gentleman before Laura about your talk, the book, clarifies what the macroscopic superpositions. Prompting the question what's the interpretation of the microscopic superpositions? We know that these amplitudes were the typical decoherence would give us problems. And you spoke in us with them saying excitations of degrees of freedom in both the splits. Yeah. Is it for you, as a, as a philosopher or physicist, a kind of open question to better specify the interpretation of the microscopic superposition? Or do you think that that answer is all you ever need or get? I think there's more that one would want to say, but I think it's the main specific. So I think asking. If the interpretation in this sense, I mean, let, me, let me say talk about the microontology of the theory. I think asking for the microontology of quantum theory is rather like asking for the microontology of classical theory. If by classical theory you mean classical theory in general as a framework theory, then anything you say about the ontology of classical physics is going to have to be something which the ontologies of springs and fluids and particles and the structure of space itself all have in common. And there's clearly very, very little you can say about that. I mean, there's not nothing you can say something about the composition of systems, but that's almost everything you can say. Um, And likewise, to talk about the ontology of quantum theory in general is going to be something where there's only a very small amount that you can say. You could ask things about what's the ontology of the standard model of quantum of, of quantum field of the standard model of particle physics, or what's the ontology of non-relativistic end particle physics. I think those are coherent questions to ask. I think if you're going to ask them, the right place to ask them is probably in the field theoretic regime. And if you're going to ask them, you need to be careful of quite a lot of pitfalls. Some of them are the sort of interpretive issues in QFT that Laura's talked about. Um, some of them, I think, are, are, are the need to avoid a temptation towards domestication. I don't think trying to ca- understand that ontology in the categories of the macro world is likely to be a sensible attitude. But I also think there are coherent things you can say about it and coherent debates you can have. Well, thank you very much. There are several other people wanted to ask questions. I'm afraid we're out of time and we have to stick to... 
uh, time. Um, but you will get the chance to remind you it, it, to raise your question directly to David, or if you had one for Laura as well, at the reception, if you care to come along to that. And that is to remind you again, sixth floor of the old uh, of the old building in Houghton Street. Sorry? Isn't it? Oh, right, right, fifth. Yeah, yeah, I'm always... Yeah, yeah, for American sixth. Very, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, you'll see people stop. Yeah, fifth floor. I'm very, very sorry. Uh, but, bef- but obviously what we should do now is thank David for a very interesting talk and very good discussion. <laughs>